Berean Community Church to celebrate the Lord's Supper or communion, usually on the first Sunday of the month. And we're going to do that today. Actually, it's not the first Sunday of the month, but I'm just warning you, if you've not picked up our little communion packet, you may want to do that. And, and here at Berean Community Church, I know we have some guests, we practice what we call open communion. That means if you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're welcome at this table. It's not my table. It's not the table of the Breeding Community Church. It's the Lord's table. And he is the one who welcomes you here. And you'll, I think you'll see how that comes together in today's message. But uh, one of the interesting things that Jesus says in the Gospel of John, actually, as he's addressing a group of Pharisees, religious experts. He says in the Gospel of John, in verse 5, verse 39, he says, you diligently study the Scriptures because you think that in them you possess eternal life. And then he turns around and says, those Scriptures, those Scriptures, they refer to me. They're about me and who I am. And then he says that he's come to give, give life, but you will not come to me. One of the things I want to point out in light of that particular passage is that God's Old Testament scriptures, his Old Covenant, is full of pointing towards what God is going to do in his new covenant, his new testament, and that of Christ. And so as we look at the Old Testament scriptures, we can see things like that Jesus is that son of David that God promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, who would build his house and sit upon his throne forever. And as we've been in the Gospel of Luke, and that's where we're going to be today, if you want to crack it open to Luke chapter 22, that's where we're going to be. But in, in chapter 20, Jesus says, look, who is this Son of Man whom David calls Lord? How does that work out? By the way, that's who I am. And then he's also that prophet-like Moses, that Moses prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, who will speak not only the very words of God, but speaks as though he were God. And so he's actually bringing it from his own authority. And if you were here in last week's service, Jesus would say, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And that's chapter 21, verse 33. But also we know in the narrative, Jesus has come to Jerusalem. And he, as he is completing his mission to redeem sinful men and women to himself, we're going to see that he is the Passover lamb. And that's referred to in, in the Old, Old Testament scriptures first, for the first time in Exodus chapter 12. But the one whose blood will not only rescue us from death, but ushers in, again, a new covenant to set men and women free from the bondage, a bondage that's greater than just human slavery. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. So before we get dive in here in chapter 22 of Luke, let me just pray for us. 
So Lord, we want to see you for who you fully are, Lord Jesus, as our Passover lamb. So Lord, I pray that you would guide my words today. I pray that you would help us to look deeply into your word and touch us, speak to us, and help us to respond to you in spirit and in truth for who you are. And Lord, if there is somebody in here today who has not yet put their faith in you, would you draw that man, that woman to yourself? Would you help them to see that Jesus, you are indeed their Passover lamb who came for them? So Lord Jesus, it's in your name I pray these things. Amen. So here we are in the narrative, verse 1 of Luke chapter 22. Now, the festival of the unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. The Passover was a profound remembrance of the past, for the Jewish people especially. That God himself had rescued them, had redeemed them, had set them free from 430 years of slavery. And in this remembrance, they remember that bread was made with haste, without yeast, because this command came the night before and they were to leave in the, in the morning. But later on it became this command not to make bread with yeast or without leaven became a command to get rid of sin, to remind them of that. But more back to this Passover and actually what happened in history. It was the final act of God tipping the scales, sending an angel of death, if you will, to come and slay every firstborn in the land of Egypt. And God's provision for His people was the Passover lamb. A perfect lamb who was slain and whose blood was put on the doorposts of every house of every Hebrew or Israelite in order that the death angel might pass over, if you will, and not put to death the firstborn of that household. And it was such a great outcry in the land of Egypt that the Israelites were released that following morning. Also going to show that these were God's people. The people of the Lord. And Yahweh, the Lord, called them to remember this. Reading out of Exodus chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. This day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. A lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. And on the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. Well, this was a huge celebration. It's like Christmas, the 4th of July, you know, and some of it, and, and uh, Thanksgiving all rolled into one. It had huge implications in relationship to their God, and it had huge implications as far as their own personal identity as a nation, as a people. And Jews still celebrate that today during, uh, during near our Easter time because it's in line with their Passover. But in the Passover meal, 
They tell the story of how God delivered them from bondage in Egypt. And this is true here with Jesus, with the Jews in this first century narrative. But here we see that there is a problem at Passover. So in verse 2, it says this, The chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Now, if you've been following us in the last few weeks, you know that Jesus has been a thorn in the side of the religious authorities. He's come and shined light on their abuse and their hypocrisy, and they do not like it. He is a threat to their authority, and they want to get rid of him, and they will do anything they can to get rid of him, including break the law of God. They need to get rid of him. The problem is, Jesus is popular. There are too many people around him. And this is the Passover season. You see, the Passover in that time had to be celebrated where God caused his name to dwell, which was at Jerusalem, at the temple. So all the people would flood into Jerusalem, a town that was probably 200,000, quickly swelled into a, a town of like 3 million people, so that everyone could come and eat the Passover there. And Jesus had people flooding around him. And the chief priest is going, we can't, it's hard to get rid of him because people are watching. They're always around him. But that's about to change. Verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. And they were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when the crowds, when no crowd was present. I titled this section of this passage, A Problem at Passover. Noting again the chief priests and, and leaders' problem with Jesus. But that's not the real problem. The real problem is that men who were charged with teaching and living out God's law in their hearts, they wanted to get rid of the Messiah that was in front of them. They were blind to who he was. They just saw him as a nuisance. Something that needed, he needed, they needed to get rid of. And they were all too willing to break God's law for their own self-interest. The problem was in their hearts. And there was another problem. One of Jesus' twelve men he called to be with himself, Judas, He's willing to go to the chief priests and offer up Jesus to betray him. What's going on in Judas's heart? It's evidence that he needs something greater than himself. And here's the thing. <laughs> There's a problem in our hearts too. You see, this problem is true of each one of us our inability to submit to God, our desire to do our own thing, our desire to live according to how we want to. The prophet Isaiah says it like this, 
in chapter 53, verse 6, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. It's sin. This is the problem at Passover. And here's the thing. When you go into God's old covenant, his Old Testament scriptures, the wages of sin is still death. Regardless of what Romans 6.23 says. Every time you see in God's law that the law is broken, a sacrifice of an animal must take place. An animal has to die for that. Blood has to be shed. Because sin is costly. The wages of sin is death. But you know what? It never changes the heart. It never really changes how we respond. And here's the other thing. It doesn't get rid of the problem of death. Everyone's going to die. The Old Testament law doesn't deal with death itself. The wages of sin is death. We have a heart problem. It's been true since the Garden of Eden. Now maybe you may say, wait, 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 Pastor, you you left out a pretty important part there. Okay? Verse 3. Satan entered into Judas. That's true. It's part of the problem as well. We have a very real spiritual enemy who is in conflict with the living God and trying to trip us up, causing us to rebel against Him, trying to influence us that way, against a holy and loving God who has made us in our image. In fact, that enemy in this gospel, in chapter 4, tries to influence the Son of Man, the living Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, and tempts Him. And he fails. And so he leaves him only to return at an opportune time. And this is the opportune time to be at work in Judas, in one of his disciples. But here's what I want you to know. Judas was not possessed by Satan. He was not like fully overcome, overwhelmed. Judas was influenced by Satan. He was exploited by what was going on in the heart of Judas. And I don't know where Judas was at at this point. I don't know if he was disillusioned with Jesus. Maybe not enough action was happening. We do know he was kind of motivated by greed in John chapter 12, verse 6. It says that Jesus, I mean, Judas kept the, kept the money bag and kind of helped himself every once in a while. But here's my point. It's easy to make Judas and even the chief chief priests, these villains, these evil characters that we don't relate to. I think when Judas started following Jesus, he wasn't going, yeah, I'll follow you and I'm going to betray you one day. No. I'll bet he believed, this is the Messiah, I get to follow him. But somewhere along the way, Judas' heart got hard. Judas' heart started relating wrongly to God and to to Jesus. Because Jesus wasn't doing things his way. 
And that can happen to all of us. Let's not make a caricature out of Judas. And by the way, the name Judas is just a grecification of the name Judah. Jesus is the Lion of Judah, by the way, who was one of the twelve tribes of Israel. No, that could be you or me. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind as we go on in this narrative. You see, any of us could be tempted by Satan, by our own greed or fear or pride. In fact, Jesus will tell Peter a little bit later, as he tells him he's going to deny him, Satan wanted to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. And that's why last week in, in chapter 21, verse 36, Jesus tells us to be on watch and to be praying. To be on guard. Sin is alive and well. And the sacrifice of a sheep is not going to take that away. It points us toward a need for a greater deliverance. Now, as the narrative goes on, we're going to see that all Jews were compelled by the Old Testament law to keep the Passover in one place, again, Jerusalem. And that was true for Jesus and his disciples. And so that's what they needed to do. And Jesus will take care of it. Let's pick it up here at verse 7. And this is what I call the provision of the Passover. Then came the day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go, make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. And say to that that owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. And they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. And so they prepared the Passover. Here's the big picture of this point. What I want you to see. Jesus provides for the Passover meal. Jesus provides for the Passover meal. Now, it's not as though Jesus lived in poverty, okay? But he was an itinerant preacher. He probably didn't make a whole lot of money. But it is Jesus who makes provision for the Passover for himself and for his disciples. They're not going to a rich follower's house. They're not going to a rich uh, Pharisee's house. It's just going to be Jesus and his disciples that are going to share this Passover together. And he is the host of this Passover meal. He arranged all the things so that all that Peter and John needed to do was follow his instructions. Now, Luke doesn't tell us really how Jesus made provision, right? Now, many commentators, you know, try and speculate, well, you know, and these, his comings and goings in Jerusalem, he probably met this person and said, hey, you have an upper room, right? Hey, can we come over? And maybe that was true, I don't know. But Luke doesn't seem to present it that way. Look at verse 10. As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water you'll meet and follow him to the house that he enters. It's not as though this guy is waiting for them at the gate, but it's like 
And you're going to come in the city and you're going to see this guy with a jar. So follow him to the house, okay? It's like Jesus is telling them what they're going to experience. It's prophetic. Go into the house, talk to the owner, and then says, the teacher asks, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. And they left and they found things just as Jesus had told them. It's like Jesus knew. How did he know? So they prepared the Passover. Here's what I'm driving at. Especially for us who are, consider ourselves followers of Jesus. So often we sense that God is calling us to do, we want to know how he's going to provide. Not, rather, what is he calling me to do, or where is he calling me to go? It's how is he going to do it? I need to know. Rather than being satisfied that, he said, I'll provide, just do what I say. It's been true of God's people all throughout salvation history. As God led his people into the, into the wilderness for 40 years, where there is no Walmart, how is he going to provide? Manna from heaven, quail. That he's going to provide a Messiah, even though we have to wait for him. God is going to be faithful to provide for us, even though we can't see it. And even as we look forward to his return, he's going to be faithful to provide for that. I think we are so tempted to lean on our own understanding. We're tempted to say, how is he going to do it? And we get hung up on it. And when we don't see it, then we start trying to generate it ourselves, rather than trusting him. To Peter and John's credit, I think they've been with Jesus long enough and seen his provision enough to say, okay, I'll do it. They don't ask how, they just go, okay. And, you know, they just find the guy. And they found things just as Jesus had told them. How about you? And how about me? Do we have a track record of seeing Jesus be faithful. God, be faithful. And when he calls us to something, we don't have to have all the answers figured out as to how. We just need to know the what and maybe sometimes the where. You see, just as Jesus faithfully provides this Passover meal for his disciples, whether it's through conventional means or supernatural means, so he'll be faithful to us to provide us what we need as we follow him. We don't necessarily have to answer all the how questions because he provides. He provided for the Passover. He'll provide for us as we follow him. And now Jesus shows an even greater provision and gives greater meaning. What I call a new purpose for the Passover. Verse 14, And when the hour came, Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Interesting statement. I have desired earnestly to eat this Passover with you. And if you know what the, where the narrative is going, he is going to the cross. 
He's going to suffer. He's going to die. Why would he say that? Well, number one, I think it's an indication that Jesus is not waiting passively for this to happen to him. He has come to do the Father's will. But he also understands he's ushering in a new era, a new covenant, and he's going to bring a greater deliverance. Now, the word in, in the Greek text is literally, for Passover, is called Pascha. We call Jesus the Paschal Lamb. And that can either mean the actual celebration itself, or it means the Lamb itself that is sacrificed. Jesus identifies with both. Because he's breathing new meaning into this remembrance of God's deliverance. Look at verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Now think about how his disciples are receiving this. You know, this is a Passover meal. They've celebrated this, you know, over and over again. And Jesus is saying, and I'm not going to celebrate it again. I'm not going to take eat of this meal until the coming of the kingdom of God. How does that work? You see, the Passover is looking back on God's faithfulness. But Jesus says, I'm bringing something. I'm looking forward. And it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Something's about to take place. And he continues on. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Again, similar words, right? Until the kingdom of God, I'm not going to drink of the vine. Until the kingdom of God comes. See, Jesus is bringing a different kingdom than what exists right now. And it will be fully consummated when he returns. By the way, this is why Jesus says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. When He returns, He will fully celebrate this celebration. And it will be a wedding supper of the Lamb. But here's also what I want you to notice, which is different in Luke than the other uh, synoptic Gospels, is that the cup comes first before the bread, and then the cup again. And if you look at Luke's account, this is probably a closer representation than what actually takes place in a Passover meal or a Jewish Seder, because there are actually four cups that are that are passed out. And the you know the Gospels just kind of focus in on on the meaning here of what Jesus is bringing. But when this cup is passed out, the host would bless the cup and say something like this, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth fruit of the vine. If you had the opportunity to watch uh, the Chosen series this last year, you'll see as the cup is offered at a, at a Seder meal or at, a, at a, a Sabbath meal, this is what the words they say. The cup is passed out. And then in verse 19 it says, And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. 
In giving thanks, he probably said again, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. See what Jesus is doing? He's breathing into this remembrance of deliverance a whole new meaning. Jesus infuses a whole new meaning into the eating of this unleavened bread in this feast. Not that it was just made in haste before they left Egypt. Or not even the fact that it's devoid of yeast, which can represent a, a being devoid of sin. But in eating this bread, you remember what Jesus has done. Or in this case, what Jesus will do for you, for me. He willingly offers up his body. And to eat it by faith is to partake, partake of what we, he willingly did. for which he will suffer, as he will be arrested, beaten, bruised, flogged, crowned with thorns, nailed to a cross, and pierced with a Roman spear, and die. Which will take, take place about approximately 18 hours after this celebration. And Jesus identifies in the scriptures to the mystery suffering servant found in Isaiah 53 verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. See what Jesus is doing here? See the new meaning he's offering up here? In offering up his body, he's going to take upon himself the punishment that should have been ours. Right now we're going to stop for a moment and think about that. As you rip off the purple cellophane or pink cellophane off the top. By faith, Lord Jesus asks us to come to this table, this Passover table. And to take this bread and remember what he has done for us in offering up his body. To do it by faith. And to do it in remembrance of him. Because he's given his body for you and for me. I just want you to take that in for a moment. Jesus offered up his body for you and for me. So take that in personally as we remember Jesus' sacrifice for us in offering up his body. He is the bread of life that sets us free.
So continuing on in this narrative. In verse 20 he says, In the same way after supper he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. In doing so, Jesus is identifying with the blood of the Passover lamb. It's substitutionary atonement. That death should have come to us. But it comes to Jesus. Just as the blood was over the door, telling the death angel, the angel of judgment to pass by. So the blood of Christ rests upon all those who have put their faith in Him. And the death angel sees that. God's judgment sees that and passes on. It is poured out for you. And it's poured out for me. And it's not just one more sacrifice. It is the blood of the new covenant in His blood. A new covenant that says something like this. Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after this time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer will they teach their neighbors saying, Know the Lord, because all will know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Those are the implications of the new covenant. That's what Jesus is pointing to. So, by faith, we take this cup, this Passover cup, the cup of the new covenant in His blood, poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. But also that God, by His Holy Spirit, might put His law in our minds and our hearts to change us, that we might know Him and be His people and have a new, a whole new emancipation from sin. Not only from its penalty, but from its tyranny in our lives. So let's take with thanksgiving the cup of the new covenant. See, Jesus is our Passover. Jesus is our Passover. Which again is much more than freeing us from earthly bondage. It not only frees us, but gives us amazing benefits to be the people of God. What an amazing thing. What an amazing thing. I hope 
I hope that you, in your quiet moments and thinking about what Jesus has done, maybe even here today, are still amazed at the grace that's been given you, that's been afforded you. I want to continue on here, though, in verses 21 through 23. But the hand of him who is going to betray me, Jesus says, is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will will go as has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. And they began to question among themselves which of them it might be. Who would do this? Here's my point. Judas, the betrayer, is at the table. The new covenant has been offered to him. He eats this bread, he drinks this wine, but it does him no good. Not because he's gone too far or will be beyond forgiveness, even though he he will betray Jesus. We're going to see that. It's available to him. This grace, this new covenant is available to him even after he betrays Jesus. And here's the amazing thing also that's going on here. Is that God in his sovereignty is going to use Judas' betrayal to bring about salvation. So that Jesus will die. God is going to use a crooked stick to accomplish his purposes. But again, here's my point. This cup of the new covenant does Judas no good because after realizing his sin, after his, his, his foolishness, he doesn't repent. He doesn't turn back to Jesus in faith for his sin, for his betrayal. He feels badly about it. Badly about it enough to take his own life. But he decides he's going to inflict the justice. He decides that he's going to do what it is to make things right, which is just to take his own life. Rather than to put his hope in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Taking this meal does him no good. Because Jesus, Judas, took place in the Lord's Supper. Our faith needs to be in the one this meal represents, not in the meal itself. This is where I'm going with this. And I know there are a lot of backgrounds as to what the meaning of communion means. And I'm not here to denigrate anything. My point is, Judas took this meal and it had no salvation efficacy on his soul. The hope and the focus needs to be on the one whom it represents, who we remember. That's the point. So I don't know where everyone is today, but my prayer has been if someone has not understood this 
that they've been putting their hope in something other than Jesus, whether that's being a good church attender or keeping all the right rules or taking communion or being baptized even. None of those things can save you unless you have your focus on the Savior. Unless that's where your faith is at. That's why Jesus would say, to as many as received him, even those who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become the sons, the daughters, the children of God. If you are putting your faith in anything else than Jesus, I have to tell you that's not going to do you any good. It can only be in Christ and Christ alone. But on the other hand, let me encourage you this way. Jesus died for Judas. Jesus died for Judas's. You and me. Because somewhere along the way, we're betraying Jesus. But he died for us anyway, knowing that we would, that he would come and redeem us and change us. And he's still in that process, folks. I was talking to the elder board yesterday and we were talking about our own flesh and fallenness. And I tell the guys, I preach much more holy than I live. But I need Jesus every day. That's my hope. That's my trust. And I pray that it's yours as well. And that's why we get to celebrate this Passover. Because God has given his lamb in order that his wrath might pass over us and in order that we might be his. What an amazing, amazing grace we've received. Let me pray for us and then I'm going to ask the worship team to come and close us. So Lord Jesus, again, you're always doing so much more than we can see more than we can ask or imagine. But even now, would you continue to make grace and the gospel amazing to us? That indeed, we are Judases, oftentimes, with our hearts focused on doing things our way, wanting things other than you. And yet, you graciously came. And in this new covenant, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I pray that if there's somebody out there who is putting their faith in anything other than you, that you give them the grace to respond to you, to your good news, to your gospel. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We need you, Lord. And I thank you that you preciously and generously made your provision in yourself. And it's in your name I pray these things. Amen. Would you stand as we respond in worship?